0: book of the Revelation, chapter 2, verse 18 to the verse 29. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith and thy patience, and thy works, and that the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins, and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord be pleased to bless that public reading of his most holy, infallible, inerrant word. Well, let us come and let us pray. Well, dear congregation, I ask you to please turn in your Bibles there to that portion of God's holy word that I read to you in your hearing there in the book of the Revelation. And we arrive in chapter 2 this evening, and we want to consider the verses in verses 18 to the verse 29 concerning the church at Thyatira. And with the Lord's help this evening, we pray that we may know the Lord's blessing as we come around his word. First of all, let's just say a few things by way of introduction. The purpose of this book is to reveal. It's called the Book of the Revelation. It's not meant to conceal, but it is meant to encourage us as churches in this gospel age. We are living in the last days, and simply the last days can mean from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ up until. His final coming. These are the last days. And in the last days, there shall be much trouble in this world, and the church will face much tribulation. As we have seen, much of this book contains symbolic language and analogy. And yet, those who are born of God only can truly understand these things. The scriptures do tell us that the natural man receiveth not the things that are of God. Man must be born again, A man's heart and his eyes must be opened, just as the Lord opened up Lydia's heart so that she received the things which Paul spoke of there in Acts chapter 16. And we're going to look at this church here at Thyatira, which incidentally was where Lydia was from. She was a seller of purple and from the city of Thyatira. But just a few things again by way of introduction. As I've said, the book is largely analogy or symbolism. And sometimes we find this in, for instance, the book of Ezekiel. There's a lot of symbolism in the Bible. Sometimes pictures, they say pictures, Or a picture is worth a thousand words. You've heard that saying before. Sometimes in a picture you can see so much more, can't you, than you would perhaps in a sentence. A picture says so much. Sometimes pictures are very powerful. And pictures sometimes can give us an understanding where our human words and our understanding are incapable of understanding. We have limited ability, don't we, even with words. I was speaking with our dear brother the other day on how many words the English language has. Some languages have far less, and it's hard to describe some things in some languages. But we all understand a picture, don't we, when we see it. We all understand how do you explain a beautiful sunset or a sunrise, especially when you know God. and God is your God. It brings warmth to the heart, doesn't it? And we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of righteousness that has risen with healing in his wings and has risen in our hearts, and who is the day spring from on high, who is as here styled as the bright and the morning star, who he will give to his people. He will give himself. We find that title there at the end of the book of the Revelation, and we'll come to that later. Now again, as I say, seven is a very prominent number in the book of the Revelation, isn't it? We see seven churches here. The lamb has seven eyes, seven horns. There are, as we've seen, seven cycles in the book. The high priest would sprinkle the altar how many times? Seven times. We have seven days in a week. All... This number really signifies is complete, whole. And here we have seven churches. And although these were literal seven churches there in Asia Minor, and if you were to draw a line from one to another, you would have a circle, and thus signifying whole, complete. Seven, however, when we think of these churches, do, because they're all different. And all the problems are unique in these churches. They do symbolize and signify the churches throughout the gospel ages, how they will have differing problems, different struggles, and so on. Seven churches. Now we've also seen that, as we've said, there are seven cycles in the book of the Revelation. We are now in the first cycle. Revelation chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4 is the first cycle. And it's, as it were, seeing things from different angles. You could imagine if you were watching a football match. I used a different analogy the other day. And if you're watching a goal that was scored, you might see it from seven different angles. Or perhaps from your house to the church. You travel along the road. You take pictures of all the trees or all the buildings on the next journey, all the signposts. You're seeing the same journey but from different perspectives. That's what we're saying. But here we are in the first perspective, the church. And we are so encouraged as we come to chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 that God would have us to see that his eye is on the church that he has not forsaken his church in this sinful, God-hating, Christ-hating world. He has his eye upon the church. He that has eyes as a flame of fire also knows what's going on in the churches and in the lives of all of God's people. And we're reminded in chapter 1 that he is walking amidst the lampstands, which represent what? the churches or the candlesticks. And then in chapter 4 we are told that Christ, where is he? He is on the throne. He is also not only amidst the churches but he is on the throne ruling, reigning, governing, superintending all things. He alone has overcome and he alone is worthy to unloose the seals. The seals really have to do with the happenings, the decrees that God has ordained and that Christ brings them all to pass because he is over all, he is superintending, he is on his throne. As we sang there from Psalm 110, he sits until he makes his enemies his footstool. He has accomplished his work here on earth as the Savior. He laid down his life for his sheep now he ever lives to intercede for his people, and he is coming again. He could even say to Nicodemus, remember, when he addressed Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a teacher of the Jews, but didn't know even what it meant to be born again, he said, marvel not, I said unto you, you must be born again. But what else did he say to Nicodemus? He taught Nicodemus the very fact that he, Christ, is omnipresent. Omnipresent. What does that mean? It means he's here and he's everywhere. In John 3, 13, we read, No man hath ascended up to heaven, says the Lord Jesus, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. He's still in heaven. He's here on earth. Because God is spirit. And Father, Son, And Holy Spirit, I am in the Father as the Father is in me. And remember that these churches represent not only seven literal churches here, but throughout the gospel age. And how Christians are from time to time. There will be, from time to time, a church that will resemble one church more than another, and so on. And it's interesting. Seven times we read, as the address is given to each church, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, not the church. And that reminds us, the Lord deals with individual churches, the local church. Each epistle here is written to a local church. Not, you notice, this is not to the church universal. So God deals with individuals as he deals by your, with, to your spirit and my spirit individually. God speaks to our spirit and he speaks by his spirit to each church here. And so these are written to each church and it's the same if you read the New Testament there's the epistle to the Philippians or the Ephesians or the Galatians. God deals with local churches and that teaches us the importance of the local church. Many people say, well, you don't need to belong to a local church. Well, you do, because that's the New Testament teaching, accountability. Hebrews 13, verse 17, we're reminded to submit to those who rule over us. You know, it's all very well talking about the church universal, but we've got to belong to the body of Christ. And if we have no one to submit over us to rule over us, how can we say that we're walking in the light? John says, "If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ." Now, once again, as we come to another epistle to a church, we thought of the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamus. We come now to the church at Thyatira. And we see we're following in the same pattern. There's this same structure, as we've seen concerning the address to the other churches, we follow the same structure. It's the same structure here. The first you'll notice is the address to the church in the verse 18. And then you'll notice tonight the one of Christ's distinct titles. And it's particularly tailored to this church and the problem that's going on there. And how he is their help. And then, you'll see the Lord's commendation, thirdly. And then fourthly, you'll see the Lord's condemnation. That is, he condemns something. And then, we'll see a solemn warning to the church at Thyatira. And then, we'll see the exaltation to this church. And then finally, the Lord's promise of an everlasting blessing if the exhortation is taken up, if it's heeded. Now this reminds us again as we come to this church here at Thyatira, no church is exactly alike. And it's the same with every Christian, isn't it? No Christian is exactly alike. We have unique and peculiar problems. We've all gone through various difficulties in life. Nobody's experienced what you've experienced, or nobody's experienced what I've experienced exactly. But the Lord knows everything. And it also reminds us that no church is without problems. Aren't we reminded of that? Now we thought of the church at Philadelphia and the church at Smyrna, and there was no particular or general condemnation to those churches, but it would be fair to say that they were not sinless churches. If they were without sin, well what on earth are they doing here on On earth, well, they are with sin, and everyone has sin. But there was no uh, general sin in which the Lord would indict those two churches. But there are encouragements to them. Now we come to this church, and uh, one thing we are reminded here, and we must stress this, it's true to all of these churches. They that overcome, he will give. That blessing, that eternal blessing. Again, the scriptures are not telling us that our salvation is by works. But we overcome because we have Christ, because we're born again, because we're born of the Spirit. That's the reason why we overcome. And here we see once again the importance of the local church. This is throughout the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, there were people that belonged to a local church because they were able to be counted, they were able to vote, and church discipline had to be practiced. And you see that here. There's a need for church discipline. And there were people who were acting like renegades, and they needed to be dealt with because they were causing problem in the church. Let us come, first of all, to the address to this church. Firstly, the address to the church at Thyatira. We read, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Once again, I must emphasize this, in case there's anybody here that wasn't here last time or the time before, the Lord Jesus is not writing to an angel, not a literal angel. He is writing to the messenger, that's what the word angel means in the Greek. And I just want to show you, if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, the, the word angel can also mean to minister. Here's the minister of the church. And we would say it would be inconceivable that John would be writing to a heavenly angel and that somehow an angel walked into the church and read this epistle. It's bizarre thinking. Hebrews 1 verse 13. Apostle Paul is speaking about those who have inheritance of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And what is the work of the angels for the church and for the believer? Verse 13. But to which of the angels said he, that's the Father, at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Now notice this. Verse 14 are they, that is the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. So the word angel can be a messenger and they minister they to God's people. But here in the sense, the angel we're told in Revelation chapter 1 that these who are in his right hand are the ministers of the church. And again, it would be a very bizarre thing, wouldn't it, for an angel to walk into a church and to read the epistle. This is for the minister who has the responsibility to teach the word and really who is accountable for the overseeing of this flock at Thyatira. So it is to the messenger or the minister of this church, the angel of the church. Secondly, notice one of Christ's distinct titles that are used here, but it's specifically tailored to this church. Verse 18b there. These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now, You're noticing, I trust, that as we go through these epistles, we've already seen, haven't we, in chapter 1, these designations that were already given to Jesus Christ, and that he, as John sees him, as John is on the island of Patmos, suffering for the testimony and for the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those announcements are there. Notice verse 14 of chapter 1. We saw this description there. When John saw the Lord, what did he see? It says in verse 14, his head and his hairs were like white wool, as white as snow. And here we have it. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and so on. So it's the same description, it's the same person, Christ, writing these things. Now why is this description given? Well, it'll become clear as we as we go along, because there are things going on in this church that some might think that Christ doesn't see. He has eyes as a flame of fire. There's this woman, Jezebel, who is a wicked woman. She reminds us even of the Jezebel of old, Ahab's wife. Well, this is not the only time that we see this description of the Lord. If you turn with me to the book of Daniel, and the chapter ten, and you notice there in the verse five, Daniel saw the Lord in a vision. It's the same description that John sees. He is the same. He is the Ancient of Days, who, who is God, and who does not change. Notice Daniel ten five. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked. And behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of ufas. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning. Now notice, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms as feet like in a color to polished brass, or the same, fine brass. And the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Same description, isn't it, as we find in the book of the Revelation? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what does this mean? His eyes as a flame of fire here. Well, we've seen it before, haven't we, in our previous studies in chapter 1. The eyes here that are as a flame of fire, they burn up pretense. As you stand before the Lord, as I stand Before the Lord, his gaze simply is so penetrating that it exposes hypocrisy. He can see right through hypocrisy. He can see right through sham. He can see right through, as we'll think, a false love and false doctrine. You know, none of us can judge any man's motives. They're so important. But the Lord Jesus knows everything. He knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He is the Word that became flesh. He is the Word embodied, as we'll see from Hebrews. If you just turn there with me to Hebrews 4, in the verse 2. Somebody who is pretending to be holy, Christ knows. Christ exposes everything. He burns everything. Away all pretense. And notice here the Apostle Paul is is speaking about the Word. And of course, who is the Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now notice, for the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Do you see that? It's interesting. He goes from speaking about the Word to God, who is the Word. Just as the Word is able, my friend, to pierce your heart and to expose hypocrisy or sham, Christ, his eyes, Christ, who is God. God. Everything is naked and opened unto the eyes of him. Notice with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. And so what we'll see tonight as we come to this church in Thyatira, there were those that who thought that Christ isn't noticing. But he knows everything. He knows absolutely everything. There were those who, who taught false doctrine. There were those who were going on in the ways of Jezebel seducing people, encouraging them to do things that are wicked, terrible. The Lord knows. Here's the thing. The Lord knows our state, our standing before him tonight. You know, people often glibly say, you know, the Lord knows my heart. But I I wonder if they really mean that. The Lord does know our hearts. and And that can be a very scary thing, particularly if we're going on in sin. But it can also be a comforting thing. And if we confess our sins, that's that's a comfort that he, he truly knows repentance and sorrow in our hearts, doesn't he? He knows that. And then we have here His feet. It says His feet like unto fine brass. You now, if you know anything about precious metals, brass can be extremely hot. Believe me, I've tried to heat it in my workshop. It gets very, very hot. Before it melts. And yet it remains hard. And that's the thought. Extreme heat. Power. Able to crush. Not only does he he know the enemy. But he is able to utterly destroy. And bring men to naught. And bring Satan to naught. And bring all of his devices Really, it speaks of judgment of the enemy, the fierce anger and wrath of Christ. Yes, even gentle Lord Jesus,
1: who is meek and mild, as feet
0: that are like unto fine brass. And so th- this is Christ's self-designation. And really what he's, he's encouraging those who might be fearful here of dealing with problems in this church Our Lord, but you don't know. You don't know this woman, Jezebel. You don't know what these people are like. You don't know what the Romans are like. You don't know what the people at Thyatira are like. Well, who's in control? Who's on the throne? Who walks amidst his lampstand? Who does the church belong to? The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Acts 20, verse 28. He bought it. And do you think he'll let harm come to it? No. And they must overcome. They must overcome by Christ and by Christ's word. Now thirdly tonight, you notice there is the Lord's commendation. Something he commends. In fact, there are six things here that the Lord commends. And it's tremendous. We'd say, by and large, it seems to be a very good church. Notice what he says. I know thy works. Verse 19. It's the word Edo again. It's not the word gnosis, which means knowledge, but edo, meaning an intimate knowledge. He who knows every fragment of our life, every thought, even before we thought it. I mean, Christ knows everything that is going to happen in the future. He knows everything in eternity. David said in Psalm 139, Thou knowest my thoughts afar off, even before I've thought them, you know my thoughts, Lord. Thou hast searched me and tried me. And then he says, search me and try me again. Now six things listed here. First of all, I know thy works. They had works. And the Lord commends them. They had works toward the Lord and to each other. They loved each other and they loved the Lord. There's no doubt about it. And charity. It's the word charis. Charis. Acts of kindness and love and goodness to each other. There was love for the brethren. There was practical concern showed for each other. Tenderness of heart. All of this. And then thy service and service in very ways. Maybe in the community, maybe in the area. Letting thy light shine
1: before men. They had
0: faith, notice, and faith. They had a knowledge of the truth. And they they believed all that God had said. They had patience also. Faith and thy patience and thy works. Now, notice, and the last to be more than the first. Some suggest, well, this means that the church is either growing numerically or in these things in all of these works. So it's, it's quite commendable, isn't it, this church? and all that's going on, I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Well, these are tremendously encouraging things. Think of the love that this church had, one for another. He it, it speaks here a lot of the, the charity, and the, the service, and Patience. Patience in tribulations. Remember this time the churches were suffering great persecution amidst a God-hating world. It was difficult to be a Christian now in the times of Domitian. And these emperors, Nero, past now. Christians had been severely persecuted. They were accused of destroying Rome. They were hated by the world. Many of them thrown to the lions. Many of them despised by this world. And yet, they were gracious men. And they loved each other. Now you notice, in John 13, verse 35, the Lord says this, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. Now it's very clear that this church had a lot To be said for it, it was pleasing to the Lord in many ways. And it seems to particularly shine in the area of love. Love for the brethren, service, devotion. But you see, it seems now that this church is being seduced by people like this Jezebel and those that taught in the ways of Jezebel because they were such a gracious church and perhaps their love, as the best commentators suggest, was misguided. You know, we're going to look at some scriptures tonight. Paul speaks about the breastplate of righteousness. And he says, "It. what is it? It's faith and love. Now, you show me a man that has much love but has little faith or little understanding. I'll show you something that is rather warped and foolish. Show me a man with much faith, but no love. I'll show you the same thing. There's a man with a lot of knowledge of what he ought to do. James says faith without works is dead. You know to do good and you don't do it, you don't show it in your life. There's no love. That's bad. But it's equally as bad if if you have a knowledge, but it seems that love is the overriding thing, and you let everything go. And that's what this church were doing. They were tolerating this woman, Jezebel. And it was done in the name of love. Very sad. Very sad. This church, as most suggest, and I believe it, it, it'll unfold as we go along here, was being taken of a fool of by some. And churches and Christians can be. You know, because the general teaching is, well, just accept everything and just accept everybody. And let's just be loving and let's just be all-embracing. Well, that's You hear that today, don't you? We must be tolerant. Well, it was in many areas a blind love. And they were, however though, fooled. You remember back in the days of King Ahab, he had his wife Jezebel. And she was a real troublemaker, wasn't she? Remember how she befriended the prophets of Baal and how she had seduced the children of Israel, how they were all gathered there. You know that great scene there on Mount Carmel, where there was the the showdown, as it were, of all those prophets, and uh, ranting and raving, dancing around, cutting
1: themselves like fools. And Elijah, he calls upon his God.
0: And God consumes everything on the altar. They couldn't call down their God because their God didn't exist. Now, that woman had deceived many. And it seems that this woman here, who is a teacher, in fact, she teaches in the church, as we'll see, and she is a self-professed prophet. They're putting up with her in the name of love. And it's wrong. In their naivety and blind love, they suffered her. They suffered her. And this is what is happening. Now, this is very important. While love is very important in a church, it is vital. It is essential. As I read from that text there in John 13, 35, the Lord said... By this shall all men that know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. But love, friends, does not sweep sin under the carpet, does it? But that is what is going on here. They are tolerating, they are suffering this woman, Jezebel, the false teacher. And again, while love is important, the church is not to go by sentiment and emotion. And well, you know that you've got a lot of that today. This is why we take great heed to not only what we sing, but how we sing things. Because I know that music has a very powerful way of moving us along emotionally. Truthness always first reached the head. You know? Music can be a powerful instrument to move our emotions and move us along in a sentimental way, but it's truth that is important, isn't it? If you just turn with me, let me just show you this breastplate of righteousness that I've been speaking about in First Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'm going to show you some other passages of Scripture as well. This is, this is an important balance. And, and I must stress, a church must have love. And we, we, we love Christ because, first of all, he loved us. And if he loved us, we love his people. John says we know that we passed from death unto life if we love the brethren. If you don't love your brothers, he says you're still in darkness. If you don't love the brethren, the one thing you must love is truth. We do not love people at the expense of truth, do we? No. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Therefore, let us not sleep says the Apostle Paul, as do others. But let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, that they may be drunken, and drunken in the night. But let us of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. You see, a breastplate is what a soldier would wear to protect him. And the Christian needs these two things in balance. He needs to have a strong faith that is governed by the word of God. But at the same time, he must also have tenderness of heart and love to the brethren, but not at the expense of that faith or truth. It's always important. Paul uses that same breastplate if you turn to Ephesians 6.14. And remember, what is that breastplate? Two things. And they one must never be absent without the other. Again, remember what James says. Faith without works is dead. Now, what is works? It's love. Because love is the working out, isn't it, of those works. You, you do things in love. As I say, love is a duty. Praying for one another. Do good to others. That's how you love your your enemy. He doesn't say like your enemy. He says love them. Pray for them. If he's hungry, give him food. Do good things. He's not talking about have a mushy, gushy feeling toward people. But he's saying live and act in such a way that it's real and genuine love. Now, Ephesians 6.14, he says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt with truth. Notice, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. It's the same. He talks about the breastplate of faith and love there in Thessalonians. What is it? It's righteousness. You cannot say a man is a righteous or a godly man if he doesn't have faith and he doesn't have love, or he is full of love and he has no faith. The two are there together. Now here's a verse in Song of Solomon. And uh, Christians ought to be familiar with the Song of Solomon. As the Lord looks upon his bride, the church, and by the way, the imagery in the Song of Solomon is very powerful. And he's not here speaking about the beauty of a woman, but Christ, as he looks at his church, he says in Song of Solomon 4, five Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Now, you know if you study the Song of Solomon that the lilies are the church. They are believers. And he speaks of his bride, the church, every true believer, as having breasts that are like twins. In other words, they are in equal proportion. As I said, a man with much faith, but he's got no love, It's a hideous thing. He's all knowledge, but he's got no love. Or a man can be all love, but it's so blind and it's so misdirected. And that is what is meant. As the Lord sees his true bride, notice here, like two young rows. Did you know that if you you study deers? they normally give birth to twins and therefore they they grow up in equal proportion don't they and that's the sense when we are born again faith and love they grow together and we are to to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the lord jesus christ grace exemplifying the very fact that we are gracious and loving people and knowledge these two must must be together in unison growing in equal Proportion. I remember some years ago, my wife may remember this. We were in Southern Ireland visiting some dear friends there. And we're speaking to some charismatic Christians. And uh, they said, uh, We can tell your husband's big on the word. But they said, But we're big on love. Well, my friends. The point is, as we go on in the Word, in our knowledge, we should go on in love. It shouldn't be one or the other. it has got to be a balance in the Christian life. And what was happening here is that this church was tolerating false doctrine by this woman. And it's so important that as a church... You know, we we cannot jettison truth at the expense of love. The Bible speaks about speaking the truth in love, doesn't it? And there can be no love where the truth is sidelined. But you've got so much of this today, don't you? The church—it's important that the church is is a place of discipline. And and here's what was happening, basically. Let me just explain. Thyatira was a commercial city. And as I said already, Lydia came from that, and she was a seller of purple. And we read there in Acts 13, in Acts 16 that she came from Thyatira. And what you had in these areas, and particularly here now in the Roman days, were these gilt trades. So if you were a woolmaker, you belonged to that gilt trade. If you were a farmer or if you were perhaps a bricklayer, and each of those guilt trades had a god. Had a pagan god. And you had to offer incense and sacrifice to those. And and, and if you didn't, you'd lose out on trade. It was like going to a, a trade show, if you like. Today we've got the unions, but this is completely different to the unions. Here we're speaking about trade, guilt trades. And so, if, as you'll see as this unfolds here, these people, you notice how she is teaching, basically. It's okay to offer, as we'll see here, food offered to idols. That's what she was tolerating and saying that that's okay. Okay. In the verse 24, you notice there, But unto you I say, unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan, and by the way, what that means is, the depths of Satan were this. Do you know where the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, Shall we sin that grace may abound? There were those that were saying, basically, if you sin more, God will show more of his grace. And guess what? God will be more glorified. The the greater you sin, the greater mercy you will know. And basically what this woman was teaching, as you notice here, those, behold, I will cast her, verse 22, into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her. She is teaching them to commit adultery. Now what adultery is this? It's spiritual adultery. It's forsaking the true, the living God, Because you've got people basically in the church who belong to this society and they're working and they're in these guilt trades and you can imagine perhaps a wool maker or somebody and if they're going to keep their job well, they've got to continue offering up incense and sacrifice, eat meat offered to idols And by the way, this was going on in the case of Caesar. Did you know, I didn't mention this the other week, but uh, there was a temple to Caesar. And you had to have a certificate once a year and produce that certificate that you offered incense to Caesar. Where's your certificate? If you don't have a certificate, you can't have a job. You won't be a, a Roman citizen. And you will suffer as a result. And so, if you belong to one of these guilt trades, and what the church was saying is, well, it's so unloving if we ask these Christians to stop and to, to forsake these guilt trades because they'll lose their job, because they'll lose their livelihood. But, my friend, God is no man's debtor, is he? Does he not own a cattle on a thousand hills, does he not own everything? Does he not own all the fishes? But what was going on here is because of this in the name of love, you see, in the, how can we do this? They'll say, "We are so unloving." Basically, this woman, Jezebel. She is just encouraging. Notice verse 20. Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach. I mean, the first thing she is doing is teaching. And the scriptures are absolutely crystal clear that women are forbidden to teach in the church of the living God. Yes, yes. That's what Paul says to Timothy, First Timothy 2:12, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp the authority over the man, but to be in silence. It's not to say that somehow, this is not a superiority thing, but God has made us different. And there are, it's to be order. Man is head of the woman. And she is not to usurp that authority. Yes, we're made in the image of God, but with differing functions. And it is the function of the man to lead, both in the church and in the home. But the spirit of this woman was that you learn my doctrine. And what was she doing? She was saying, accept this. Society is difficult, times are changing, we need to be all embracing. And so this is what you've got today. You've got people who basically say this is not loving if you don't accept people. Don't you understand how difficult it is in the world today? Don't you understand what it, that you have to sacrifice some things? You have to sacrifice some truth? There's no sacrifice of the truth, my friends. Today, it's no different. Let me say this. The world will say, and you might even suffer as a Christian, you can't just worship one God. That's society today. If you don't accept other people's religion, we're not having you. We don't want somebody to work for us like that. We don't want some nutcase who believes in a young earth. That's how the world thinks, doesn't it? Bizarre person. You can't just believe in creation. You can't be so narrow. You have to be all-embracing. You have to worship diversity today. You have to worship same-sex marriage. That's the God of this age, isn't it? You have to almost worship the climate change movement today. And sadly, although I have a great deal of respect for the NHS, people are starting to worship the NHS. We are very thankful for the work they do, but we don't worship them and we don't worship science, do we? We don't worship governments. These people who were in these guilds, let me say this, there were festivals that they had to go to. And in the festivals, they had to offer this meat eat this meat offered to idols, and if you didn't, you're out. You're not one of us. Some of you, perhaps, have already experienced this in your workplace. You know you you have the Christmas dinner, you've got to go, or you've got to go to this, you've got to go to that. And if you don't go, more than likely you'll lose your job. You can't go against conscience, can you? You lose your status. And this woman was basically saying, Well, you you can't surely expect these people to, to lose their jobs, to be cut off. We love our brothers and sisters, she was saying in effect. But what about the Lord? What about what he thinks? You have to honor him. What did the Lord say? And by the way, you'd even, let me say this, you'd even have family members. If you were in that guilt trade, it wasn't just you, but it would be your son, maybe your grandson. And they would cut you off too. And we read, the Lord says, and if a man's foe shall be then of his own household, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Not a Christian. We put him first, don't we? The Lord tells us not to be unequally yoked. Well, they suffered this woman who called herself a prophetess, verse 20. Well, first thing she did, notice she was teaching. That's a sin, isn't it? She was a self-appointed teacher, a prophetess even, claiming to be a prophetess. Teaching people to go to these trade festivals, to do these things in the name of love. You've got to keep your job, she was saying. It's okay. She was in the church. Even allowed to teach seems bizarre, but it happened. God is a God of love," she's saying. Notice what the Lord says, verse 21, and I gave her space or time to repent of her fornication. She's fornicating with the world, and she repented not. As I said, what else was she teaching? Look down at down to verse 24. I mentioned that uh, depths of Satan, it's called there. But unto you I say, and the rest in Thyatira, he's addressing the whole church, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak. That's what I want to call it. Have you sunk to the depths of Satan? Have you sinned so much? Let us sin that grace may abound. He's saying, as many as have not done this, Well, the Lord will bless such. But this was a great sin. The depths of Satan was to sin so wickedly so that as you are then supposedly forgiven, you will praise God all the more when you're forgiven. Heinous. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we? Are dead to sin, live any longer therein. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that this place here, Thyatira, is the very place where Lydia came from. We read there in Acts 16, don't we? Verse 14, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, well, that's where she came from. And the Lord opened up her heart. But let's Look now at the solemn warning, verse 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. Now the Lord is using irony here, in a sense. She is trying to seduce the church members. Just look. The Lord understands God's a God of love. All will be well after all. Doesn't God forgive? She is seducing. Like Jezebel of old was seducing Israel. By her sitting down with over 100 prophets, she was seducing this church here. Was saying, you know, God understands. It's okay. You don't have to go to church on the Lord's. You don't have to, you know, God will, God's a God of love. Well, the Lord said, if you love me, keep my commandments, didn't he? If you love me, keep my commandments. There's the proof of your
1: love. Don't talk about love if you don't keep his commandments. Notice this
0: warning. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. The Lord's going to put them in a bed. is a terrible end, isn't it? Some people say, you've made your bed, now sleep in it. This woman has caused so much trouble. And what is the Lord going to do? Verse 23, I will kill her children with death. Who are the children? Those that have followed her pernicious doctrine. Those that she has really raised in the church and have followed on in a way. Well, the Lord knows who are His. We shouldn't be surprised that there are people that follow on in this way. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. You see what I mean about he has the eyes as a flame of fire. I know every one of these people that this woman has led astray. This woman, in effect, has manipulated this church. And there are people that manipulate the church. The church can have a lot of love and entice people to sin. Just forgive us, you know. know, Just overlook our problems. The church is
1: not to overlook sin.
0: Is it? It's, It's the most unloving thing you can do. What does the Lord command? If thy brother sin against thee, Go and tell him his fault to himself. And you don't stop there. And by the way, a lot of people just stop there. If he
1: doesn't hear you, you go and tell somebody else. And if he doesn't hear
0: you and your friends or your Christian friends in the church, you go and tell the church as a whole. That's why it is so important to be a member of a church. Because then, the church enacts discipline. It can only really be done by the church as a body. Not by the minister, not by you, not by me, but the church in the stead of Christ. Sin is not to be tolerated in the church. Why? Because God's people or to be a holy people. We are not to be a licentious people. This woman was saying, it's okay. They were suffering her to teach all of these things. You can do what you want. You're in the world now. Move with the time. Today we've got churches that say, it's unloving. If you say to a couple and they're not married, you can't live together. It's unloving, they say, to tell same-sex couples that they're going to hell. That's the truth.
1: The church today will say, this is
0: unloving, that's unloving. The Lord says, you better address this. Because those that tolerate this
1: will be destroyed with her.
0: I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority. The woman, Paul says, should be silent
1: in the churches.
0: I will give, notice, every one of you according to your works. This woman is trying to have spiritual children in the church. You notice her children, as it were, but the Lord says, I will destroy her. And I will destroy her children. Sixthly, the exhortation to the church, verse 24 and 25. But I say unto you and the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, you haven't followed on in her doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, you have not indulged in this, you have not said, let's sin, that grace may abound. As they speak, I will put... Upon you, none other but. He says, I'm not going to give you, you have been faithful. Okay? But what do you do? What is the exhortation? But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. Keep holding on. Don't let go of what you have. You've been taught the truth. You continue to walk in the truth. You, he says, hold fast. Till I come. So important, isn't it? You see, you need truth
1: as well as love, don't you? You need truth. And if we are Christians, we should be prepared to be lovingly disciplined. It's for our good. What does the Lord say? He chastens
0: them whom he loves. But seventhly, notice as we close. Christ's promise of everlasting blessing if the exhortation is heeded. Notice there. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. What are his works? Faith and love. It's the evidence is not it. And it's that breastplate of righteousness, the works that he's told us to do. Him will I give power over the nations. Now, what you notice is that this is an inheritance. This woman is claiming to have children, and a a real spiritual children of her own. But Christ says, here's the the thing. I'm going to take you back to Psalm 2. Now, you notice the language of Psalm 2, it's couched in these words. Notice, let me just read them and then we'll turn to Psalm 2 and draw to a conclusion. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That's the inheritance. The father said to the son, thou art my son. Today I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Now, and thou shalt rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my Father. Notice that. He's taking us back, the Lord Jesus, to Psalm 2. You say, where is it? Let's turn there. Psalm 2, verse 7. This is what the Father spoke to the Son. And this is what is so amazing, isn't it, about the Scriptures, how so wonderfully self-attesting they are. Psalm 2, verse 7. The father is speaking to the son. You've got to read the psalm from the beginning. And by the way, Psalm 110 is also a psalm, the father to the son. And uh, I'll read from verse 7 there. I will declare the decree the Lord saith unto me, thou art my son. You notice the translators have rightly capitalized the Son there, signifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And here it's the same language as in Revelation chapter 2. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like A potter's vessel. You see, what is this? This is the inheritance of the Son. And what Christ is saying here in Revelation 2 is that we are those who share in his inheritance. Doesn't Paul say we are heirs with Christ? We are heirs with him forever. Are we not? And that's what he is saying here. He that overcomes... This woman who is a false teacher and who will be destroyed, she belongs to Satan. And all who follow on in that licentious, pseudo-Christian way will be destroyed. They are not born again. They have no part in my inheritance. But if you obey me, he says, you will share with what I have, what the Father has promised to give me, and he thus quotes here from Psalm 2, it's the Lord's inheritance, and it's the inheritance of the saints in light. How thankful we are. Now notice, and I will give him the morning star. You say, well, what's that? Well, the answer there is, if you just notice quickly, Revelation twenty-two fifteen. 15, that's Christ himself. Notice what he says there. He says, I, Jesus, verse 16, Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. He says, you know what? I'm not going to only give you an inheritance as I will dash the nations and the meek, here's the thing, the meek will inherit the earth, a new heavens and a new earth. But guess what? I will give you myself. I am the bright
1: and the morning star. What more can we want? than Christ. Who loved us. And gave himself for us that we might
0: be redeemed from all iniquity in this world. And sin and defilement in the world to come. My friends, there might be those who come in and say, You know, you've got to tolerate this.
1: You've got to tolerate that. But if the word of God
0: condemns it, We must never do it. And the Word of God gives us principles for life, doesn't it? How we should live. And we are to be a principled people. You know, many people say, oh, well, you're just too nitpickety. My friends, he that has eyes as a flame of fire is concerned for the holiness of his people. Yes, he is concerned that we have love,
1: but as we read, we walk in truth.
0: You can't say you walk in love and you're not walking in truth. May we renounce all sin. This world is wicked. It's going to be difficult as a Christian. You may lose job. You may lose this. You may lose family. You may lose. But Christ will provide. And you have an inheritance that's undefiled. And Peter says that fadeth not away. Reserved in heaven for you. you. What more can you want? Peter says, you know what? You have been purchased, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb without spot, without blemish. Therefore, he says, pass your time of sojourning in fear. That's a holy filial fear. Of God, may God keep us. As we walk in his truth, we're walking in love to him and we will have love one for another. May God help us in these times. For his name's sake, amen.